Oh, well, church, what a blessing it is to be here, and what a blessing it is to be back in our Matthew series this morning here as we dive into chapter 11. And by way of transition, after the last few weeks of us kind of having church vision casting type sermons, looking at church goals and benefiting from preaching and the Great Commission, we're jumping right back in to where we left off. And to tie kind of our series together with what we've been seeing the last several weeks about the importance of intentional word-based ministry, Bible-saturated ministry, Scripture-centered ministry, as opposed and in contrast to whatever popular fads that may come and go in our day, and there are many of them. These man-made common approaches are here today, gone tomorrow. But hear this, remember this, church. The word of the Lord remains forever. Some churches literally emphasize the power of positive thought. If you think it, it will come to pass. That's what you hear every week. You know those churches. Others emphasize a kind of conversational, chatty, fireside dialogue instead of bold preaching. And in that view, the less urgent and unimpassioned and more casual, the better, they would say. Our church focuses on something different. Other churches focus on how we can get rich and perpetually healthy by naming it and claiming it what exactly it is, and why it's so powerful, I don't know. But you know, they do that kind of thing. Whatever is kind of pulling to the heartstrings of the people. People can be gullible. They like to get whipped up into a frenzy. So the more emotional and less scriptural and rooted in kind of logical connections of what is actually there, the better, they would say, sadly, but not here at First Baptist Church. And let's see and read the transitional verse in Matthew chapter 11, 1 together, which we covered in our last sermon over a month ago, but will now launch us in back to our text to kind of get our equilibrium set in the world of chaos. And would you stand with me for the reading of God's word, even if it is just this one verse before we get to the rest of them. This is inspired. God breathed. It's for us. And notice, even up front, I'm leading us to the text. What does the word point to as the primary ministry of Jesus? Which so happens to be the primary ministry of our church here in Gallatin. Not positive thinking, or apathetic chatting, or get-rich schemes, or mindless emotionalism. Let's see what Jesus did and said after He preached the message to his disciples about persecution and pointing to his exclusivity over family, friends, and life itself. Remember, we saw that. What does he say in in chapter 11 and verse 1? It says, when Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. And that's exactly what I'll do right now as we see the word preached. Pray with me. Father, 
We ask, Lord, that you would press the truths of Scripture on our hearts. Would you help all of us desire the preaching and teaching of the Word? Help me to preach in a way that's faithful. Help me to follow in the footsteps of King Jesus and and other preachers of the Word throughout the Scriptures and throughout church history and others around the world today that are lifting up their voices, preaching the truth that you've given because you set the standard for us, Lord. Help us today. Help us to benefit from it. Help us to glean from it. It's your word. We say this in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. Our passage today that we're going to see in a minute is really a confusing, seemingly contradictory picture of a bold, fiery, confident prophet who got to a place that led him to a timid, confused, and an uncertain place, even to the point of doubting. Have you ever had doubts yourself? Maybe in light of terrible tragedy. Oh, Lord, how could you let this happen to me or to my family? How, oh, Lord? Or maybe in light of extreme opposition. Am I really called to love them and live the Christian life as a witness to Christ if they are so terrible to me? What's the use? They seem so hardened. Maybe I should just quit. Have you been there? John the Baptist, of all people, had doubts like this. The prophet who preached boldly against the Pharisees and scribes, religious leaders. The prophet who would not back down to a king, but instead call him out for sexual immorality, as we'll see later in the book. The prophet who was so confident, preached, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, as we saw earlier in the book experienced great lows as well. Just like you and me. Just like believers throughout church history. If you have doubts and struggles, you're not alone. You are not alone. Even John the Baptist, who was the greatest prophet, or even more, the greatest man or person who had ever lived prior to Christ, This great man, even John the Baptist, had serious doubts and found himself in a very, very low place. Let's see. In our first point, the greatest prophet who doubts, right from our text, there in the beginning of Matthew chapter 11, moving on to verses 2 through 6. It's the word of God. Now, when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent Word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by 
It's almost unthinkable, isn't it? That this bold prophet would doubt like this. We don't think of him that way when we think of John the Baptist. But we see hence that John the Baptist and his followers, his disciples, were struggling to read their Bibles accurately. What do I mean by that? Remember, we saw a few sermons ago back in our series in Matthew that John's disciples, John the Baptist's disciples, had the audacity to confront Jesus and side with the Pharisees on the topic of fasting. Let's see it again to be reminded of what we saw in Matthew chapter 9 and verse 14. Then the disciples of John, that's John the Baptist, came to him saying, Why do we and the prophecy uh, and the Pharisees fast? But your disciples do not fast. Remember that? Who do those guys think that they are? Siding with the religious opponents that were against Jesus, the Pharisees, against Jesus themselves. Apparently, John the Baptist had not taught and discipled his followers all that well, or he wasn't making the connections either. And they were all just really confused. Jesus had to correct them with biblical truth. Because Jesus sets the standard with his coming, and everything is changed when he comes, including fasting and other aspects of the old covenant law. We're now in an era that is new than the old. And Jesus had to rebuke and correct them, you see. He, he had to teach them, confront them, show them a different way. Now, who knows what these disciples of John passed along to him in prison? He's in prison. They're talking to him, talking to him about Jesus. Did they tell him about all the mighty and miraculous deeds and preaching and miracles Jesus was accomplishing that we've been seeing through Matthew chapters 8 through 9, so powerful one after another after another? Who knows? But even if they passed along everything to this mighty prophet, John the Baptist, John may have seen all that information and still concluded with confusing evidence, even in seeing Jesus' compassionate healing and works, but still maybe thought to himself that something was missing with Jesus. That, that, that seems to be the case here. Something was missing in John's perspective. For John had both expectations of healing and deliverance, but also of conquering victory and judgment. Remember, he preached that. And here he was, rotting away in a jail cell. And the enemies of him and Jesus seemed to be prevailing. Things just weren't adding up. John the Baptist really could have used the instruction that Jesus gave in his second discourse or second sermon that we saw in chapter 10, that, you know, the preaching of Jesus to his 12 disciples, pointing out their inevitable, severe persecution even, on account of Jesus. I think John the Baptist would have seen and been encouraged and helped by that, don't you? He's in jail. But he was stuck in prison, and he was discouraged in his circumstances and confused by all the lack of victory and lack of judgment. 
What's going on, he's wondering. His expectations didn't match his experience. You see that? But his problem was that either he was getting unclear, slanted reports from his disciples, or he was succumbing to his own unclear expectations and biblical lack of understanding himself. If his disciples were off on the topic of fasting, right, and Jesus' fulfillment of the Old Testament law, maybe he was off on his expectations of the Messiah. Can you see that happening? Now, the Messiah would rule and reign, but in his first coming, his kingdom power would be seen not in judgment in earthly kingdoms, right? But in salvific transformation, physical healings, and bold, authoritative preaching. And oh, didn't we see that from Jesus? And then a sacrificial death. That's what we'd see in his first coming. It wouldn't be until his second coming that judgment and finality would occur in the future, what we're still waiting for. Maybe John was just not adding that up in his thinking, and maybe John needed to be corrected. I think that's the case. And Jesus just does exactly that, doesn't he? He, he, he points out where he is wrong, and he points to his miraculous healings and powerful preaching to clarify these false expectations. Have you ever had false expectations yourself? about the way things should be, about what, how you think the Christian life should go, about how you think God should treat you and how you think your life should... This is not how it... It was all planned out, God. What, what's going on here? Have you ever had false expectations like that? I, I know I have. John had them. John needed to be corrected like his disciples, and they all needed to get on board with the new realities that Jesus brought to the table in the new covenant. But you see, this transitional period of biblical history that we see, we can understand why they were so confused and did not get things very clear the first time. Even Jesus' disciples were all confused so many times, over and over and over. It looked like they just weren't listening and seeing it and connecting it. it. It took time. Think about it. This was the Old Testament times, and the Old Covenant was still a fact prior to Christ's death, so it's this transition. We're reading the New Testament, Matthew's in the New Testament, but you see we're in this transition. Things were different then. Jesus had not died. The blood of the new covenant had not been established. Transitionary period. They didn't have the book of Romans yet, for instance, or 1 John or Galatians. They were still figuring Jesus out because John was preparing the way for Jesus, and would die a martyr's death, as we'll see later in the book, before Jesus ever even died on the cross himself. (laughs) John, John didn't see the fullness of it all. So John brings up an honest question. And notice, even in his question, John the Baptist had faith in that he knew that there would be a Messiah. He believed that. He just wasn't sure and had doubts as to whether Jesus was the one. You see that? Are you the one, or maybe there's someone else? Is someone else coming? He didn't lose faith that the Messiah was coming. He was just kind of confused here. What's going on? And notice that in Jesus' response, he not only tells them what he has been doing that is clearly fulfilling Old Testament prophecy. All these things he's been doing, you could see Old Testament allusions, and we could turn there. We're not going to today, but you could see it. Maybe in your little notes in your Bible, there's like a little number next to things, and you could go and look at the Old Testament passage. 
But Jesus also challenges John and the disciples, his disciples, with a new beatitude or kingdom attitude. Did you pick it up on that? Let's see it again in verse six. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Which on the heels of all this was a clear rebuke to John and their disciples in their hesitation and their doubts and lack of clarity. But it was also hope-giving because I think Jesus knew that John would repent of his waffling here and he would, in fact, continue to believe in Jesus as the Messiah. Why do I say that? Why do I think Jesus is, is seeing, looking into how John's gonna respond? Why? Because let's see what Jesus goes on to say right after this, this kind of mild rebuke to him and the disciples. And reminder, really, don't, don't be offended by me. Don't, don't doubt me. A reminder here. Let's see what he says next. And point number two, we see that the prophet doubts. Now we're gonna see that the prophet prepares. What does Jesus say on the heels of this doubt in verse seven through 11? This, this is what he says. Truly, I say to you, among those born of woman, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least, sorry, I'm gonna start back in verse seven. I skipped ahead to the end. Forgive me, verse seven. As they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. Truly, I say to you, among those born of woman, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Do you see where Jesus goes here, even in light of John's doubts? John the Baptist had things all jumbled up and wrong. And Jesus goes from rebuking him and his disciples to praising him. And he knew he'd come around, didn't he? He knew he'd come around. And the fact that this great man doubted should hopefully give us all hope that even in our own struggles, and we all have them, in our imperfections and in our frailty in this fallen world that we live in and in our sin, I mean, we should have hope that this bold and mighty wilderness preacher who did not even dress up in fine kingly clothes and he didn't even eat privileged meals, but he was roughing it in a kind of way, not some soft clothing, nicely put, not, not just, no, no, he was sacrificing for the gospel. He was a bold guy laying it all on the line for Jesus. He was that wilderness one-track mind, bold and tough prophet that they all knew. But even in light of all that, he also got things mixed up and doubted Jesus. And look what we just saw in Jesus' response. Rather than abandoning and rejecting John the Baptist, we see a wonderful, forgiving Savior who keeps our whole lives in perspective, doesn't he? And Jesus doesn't treat us at our very 
weak and fluctuating moments and the ups and downs and the weaknesses. He doesn't treat us in those ways as, as sometimes those actions and, and thoughts might merit. He, he doesn't give us that, but he treats us with grace and mercy, don't you see? Or as the famous preacher Adrian Rogers once put it, I love this, Jesus knew John's heart, and Jesus did not mistake the moment for the man. Isn't that good? He didn't mistake the moment for the man. So from correction and rebuke here to praise and purpose is what we see, kind of like what good fathers and mothers do with their children. It's not all correction and discipline and you're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong alone, but also encouragement as well. Do you need encouragement today, maybe? John did, do you need it? Jesus is the great encourager, do you see this? Maybe you, like John, have fallen on hard times and life's circumstances have got you down low and out. Or, or you're starting to believe the lies that everyone else is doing okay while you're over here struggling. Oh, they're perfect, they're happy, they're good, and I'm always miserable. Why is this so good for them? And maybe you're like, they're, they're unbelievers and they seem like they're just doing so much better than me. Maybe you're where John the Baptist was. Look, you have a savior who does not leave you in the dumps, but reaches his hand out to lift you up, points you to the direction that he wants, to restore you. What a gracious savior he is, right? But you might object and say, I'm nowhere near John the Baptist and all the greatness that he displayed. He just has so much going for him. Well, yes. Yes, he did. And he also got down and discouraged and doubted. (laughs) You see that? But you say, he was bold outside of that, and he did great things for God. Who am I? Yes, yes, he was bold, and he did great things. And he prepared the way for King Jesus as prophecy foretold. And he was literally the greatest man who ever lived. Put aside the greatest prophet. Sure, he was that as he prepared the way for Christ as that last kind of transitionary Old Testament prophet, but Jesus says that he was the greatest person ever. So I would, I could kind of get and and relate to the objections here. But once again, notice that Jesus is now praising the doubting prophet here. How encouraging is that? But even in John's greatness that you might compare yourself with, and we do that often, we compare ourselves to others. Maybe biblical characters, maybe other friends, maybe other Christians you know. We compare ourselves. Even in light of that comparison that you might do with John, can I tell you this? This is so true. This is biblical. You could take it to the bank. You could mark it down. This is really true whether you believe it or not. You are better than him. You are greater than even John. You have more privilege and knowledge and opportunity than even the greatest of Old Testament saints. More than even John the Baptist himself, the passage says. If you are a believer here with us, you are greater than even him. Please don't think of yourself as somehow inferior. If you are a Christian, though Muhammad Ali might say he's the greatest boxer, and Jesus might say John the Baptist was the greatest person leading up to him, you, in the new covenant, with all the knowledge that you have of Christ who's come and died for you, If you're a new covenant believer, get this, you are greater than Abraham, David, Moses, and even John the Baptist himself. 
or all of them put together. Why? Every last new covenant saint, even every believer here today in this new era, that's what we're in. We're in the new covenant era, the new privileges and a fuller gospel picture. You, even you, every last one of us, even the least of us, whoever that may be, the least Christian in the whole world, even the least, it says, is greater than the best of the old, better than John the Baptist himself. Do you see that? Do you feel that? Do you believe that? Let's see it again in verse 11. It says, truly, I say to you, among those born of woman, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. He's the greatest right there, right? The greatest, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. He's talking about us as new covenant believers. And if Jesus helped John the Baptist out, the greatest doubting prophet who was lesser than you in the grand scheme of biblical history and knowledge and position, the new covenant believer that you are, don't you think that he can and will help you too in your doubts, in your weaknesses, in your sin and guilt and your discouragement? Go to him, believer. Go to him now. So we see here, this great prophet preparing the way for Jesus. But how does he do that? In what manner does he prepare the way? This is important for us. If we're going to continue on in that way of Christ, we need to understand how that whole thing's going down with John who's prepared the way that we're living into. So let's see it in point number three. Let's see that the prophet advances in verses 12 through 15 now for this. Verse 12, from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. That just kind of sparks us to the profound nature of what's going on here. There's something mysterious, profound going on here. Do you have ears? If you're a believer, you'll have ears and eyes. But let's, let's focus in here. And I think it's really important to see here up front that John is not defined, of course, right, as Jesus has gone on. He's not defined by his doubts and struggles, is he? But by something more fundamental and foundational to who he was, who he was born to be, who God used him as. He was the forerunner of King Jesus. He was the prophet who came right before the Messiah. And this prophet, John the Baptist, was uniquely used by God to confront a hostile world with the unpopular preparatory message that he brought. That's what he did. That's who he was. He was defined by the, this time of doubt. He was a great man of God. Who struggled was not perfect. He was a great man of God. Calling people not to remain as they are, not, not a kind of, you do you. Just stay how you are. Live the way you want. Not like that by any stretch of the imagination. You know John the Baptist. Calling people to repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. But what happens when a message like that confronts an unbelieving people? What happens? Whether they're religious people or, or, or pagan. I'm talking about unbelieving in that category. 
there's much opposition, right? There's an explosion of resistance to a message like that. We see it today. In fact, there's violence against it, right? And that's just what we see here. We see that there is violence done, not only to John in prison, because later we're going to see he has his head chopped off as a martyr. His imprisonment will lead to his beheading. Not only was John persecuted in that way, violence came. The disciples also were warned of persecution. And most of those disciples would die for the sake of Christ, wouldn't they? Not to mention Jesus, hello, Jesus himself would go to a cross. The opponents of Jesus were against John and the believers throughout church history, even to this very day. Remember, Jesus said that even family members would rise up against some of them. People who were not being saved hated Jesus and his messengers, which is why they violently put many of them to death. You see that violence coming on? Opposition. But John was not only the forerunner to Jesus, but he was also prophesied about as a prophet who would come in the spirit of the great prophet Elijah himself. John the Baptist fulfills Malachi 4.5 that says, let's see it. What does it say in the Old Testament? Right before the transition to the New Testament, the last book there. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. So John the Baptist, to be clear, was not Elijah somehow reincarnated. That's not the biblical worldview of how things work. No. But he was the last prophet leading to Christ who came in the spirit and power and fulfillment in a similar role as an Elijah-like prophet. Do you see that? And and get this too. John the Baptist didn't even realize he was fulfilling this role because in the Gospel of John, he denies that he was this Elijah-like prophet. But Jesus right here knows exactly who John is and shows who he is and shows him that he's even more special than he would have even thought. Right after he publicly doubted Jesus. (laughs) Of all the times to do that. God was using this doubting prophet of a man to do great things even though he struggled and didn't fully grasp himself, his position in the grand scheme of things. Maybe you don't see yourself as greater than John and the Old Testament heroes that you know and love from Scripture. That's okay. God is patient with you. You will come around. He knows where you're at. He knows that you're greater than that. Even if you don't fully grasp it. Even as John didn't fully grasp it. You see those connections there. But as John was in prison and on his way to his very death, God used and was using him to encourage everyone around him during that time, John's disciples and Jesus' disciples, and then look, encouraging us here today. Even us today, as we can see the plan of God fulfilled in John the Baptist to prepare the way to continue to advance the way. And, and hear this, this is not all down and out, failure, lost opposition. Just because violent opposition comes against John and those who followed after him doesn't mean that the violent persecutors win. Spoiler alert, everybody. They lose in the end, those persecutors. 
And in a crazy and unexpected way even, their persecution and violence done against believers actually emboldened Christians to advance spiritually and even aggressive and violent ways in another sense themselves. John was not going out as a military soldier, and neither was Jesus or his disciples, but the violence of the persecutors was met by urgent and committed violent-type counter, if you will, by believers. John was not some passive couch-sitting guy, but a bold preacher, a bold proclaimer, a committed follower, who though he lost heart at times, as we see, was emboldened to the point of trusting Christ all the way to his very death. Peter, remember Peter, who was once a doubter himself, denied Jesus. Remember he denied Jesus when the girl came to him? He was restored and then boldly proclaimed Christ, as we saw in Sunday school, and 3,000 people were saved on that one day through his preaching at Pentecost. Oh, he was used after he was restored. The Lord does wonderful things with his people, even though imperfect as they are. The violent inflict blows on the kingdom of heaven. Yes, But as it also says, the violent take it by force, which cannot be referring to unbelieving opposition because the persecutors on the second half of it do not take the kingdom. It's not theirs. Let me remind you, it's not theirs. It was never theirs to begin with. It wasn't theirs back then, and it's not theirs now. The kingdom is and is taken and advanced by men and women with bold convictions, like John the Baptist, as we see, and Lydia, who was converted and showed instant signs of God's grace, as we see in the book of Acts, in her life as she opened, as the Lord opened up her heart so that she would open up her home, and even in light of the potential persecution that would have come to her. It's advancing. The gospel's advancing. The kingdom's advancing. Or like the disciples who gave their all in their lives for Christ, like believers all over the world, believers in this room, who do not sit around and doing nothing, but take hold and advance kingdom realities by God's grace and mercy. I agree with D.A. Carson in this. He says this, The kingdom has come with holy power and magnificent energy that has been pushing back the frontiers of darkness. This is especially manifest in Jesus' miracle and ties in with Jesus' response to the Baptist here in Matthew eleven five, Some kind of compulsion even of people is presupposed elsewhere in Luke 14, 23. Moreover, he says, the force implied by the middle deponent verb, now he's getting fancy talking about the, the Greek and things, but he's saying it does not always imply violent or cruel things going on here. So I hope we can see the two contrasts of violent. The opponents are persecuting violently. And the believers following that of John the Baptist and Jesus himself advancing against the powers of darkness, not with physical swords and spears, as Jesus tells the disciples to put all that away, right? We're not going to go and create an army and fight against the powers of evil that way. No, that was a different kind of advancing that he was proposing, a different fashion, with gospel proclamation and boldness. And if you look throughout church history, the blood even of martyrs did not thwart Christian advance, but propelled it to greater and greater degrees. The best example being Jesus himself who was seized, beaten, 
and then crucified on a Roman cross. But resurrected, of course, three days later and is the mighty Savior, Lord, and King over an advancing Christianity that we see today in the lives of believers proclaiming the gospel more and more as other believers are being saved and the prophet advances. You see the advance. And this leads us now to further consider, though, how people responded to John the Baptist and Jesus. How do they respond to all this? Okay, We see some of that here in the persecution, but how, how else did they respond? How else does Jesus show us? that they're going to respond. Look with me in point number four, the prophet rejected now in verses 16 through 19 for our last point. It says here quickly, but to what shall I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their playmates. We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking And they say, he has a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking. And they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. Matthew closes the section dealing with John the Baptist with the parable of Jesus of all things. And the parable is a rebuke to the people in that generation. And I think it's a rebuke also for the people of our generation as well. If we just see the connections to see what it's saying, see it for yourself here. But before we even think about that parable, let's just ask right now, how do you think people responded to the prophet John the Baptist? Well, we know that he's in prison, but we also know that people treat followers of messengers of Jesus kind of like the way they treated Jesus, right? Over and over we have seen that even in light of Jesus' amazing, compassionate healing and wonderful miracles and teachings that should have led to people to faith and awe and wonder and glory, what have we been seeing? That the religious leaders, the scribes and Pharisees, were coming against him and attacking him for not aligning with their expectations and their preferences. Remember that? So it's no surprise that this parable calls out their generation for being childlike. Not a good sense of wonder and awe and innocence, but childlike in a kind of a childish, illogical way or in an ignorant and bratty or stubborn kind of way. That's the kind of use that he's getting at here in this parable. Of course, children are not all that way, to be clear. And Jesus even calls the children to himself, let the children come to me, right? This is not a word against kids. This is not a parable rebuking kids. This is not a burn to say how bad kids are. No, it's a burn though. And it's a word against the generations acting childishly. Do you see that? Do you see the connection? The parable points to children doing childlike things and playing children games. We saw it, right? You can see it there as you're looking. But some of them did not seem to want to play along in the fashion that they should. The flute would naturally lead to what? Dancing, right? But he said that these children would just not, we're not having it. (laughs) And they wouldn't dance. And the dirge, you see, was played for mourning. It's different. It's a sad sound. But the children in that game also weren't playing along. They didn't participate and mourn as they should have. And in my study 
learning from the commentaries and others, children in that day would play public wedding ceremony games and dance in that way. And they would also do kind of public funeral ceremonies as well to mourn because that's what they were so used to be seeing publicly. And kids, they mimic what they see. We don't always see those things all the time so publicly, but then they would see it just evident. Kind of like kids playing house, right? Can you see see that connection? They mimic what they see. And normally the, the kids would play along, but some here didn't want to go along with the party. They were doing the exact opposite. Do you see what this parable of the story is is bringing out? So John the Baptist came in a very prophet-like, counter-cultural, mourning kind of way, fasting and dreary and doom and gloom, and they rejected him and opposed John at all costs. We see it. We, We see that's how they responded to him. He wasn't what they were looking for, right? They even called him demon-possessed. He's too serious and down and extreme for us they might have said. You see that on the one hand? But Jesus, on the flip side, on the other hand, he came not fasting and isolating like John, but going to the people and eating and drinking with them. He multiplied wine at the wedding in his first miracle, as we see. And he befriended sinners and tax collectors, and he actually went to their homes and ate with them. He hung out with people. He was with them. He was eating and drinking. But that wasn't good enough for them either. They were against that too, calling Jesus a party animal, so to speak, a glutton and a drunkard and a friend of sinners is what they called Jesus. So it was kind of a lose-lose situation. Do you see that? With this generation, no matter what the preacher did, everyone's preferences demanded the opposite. And when the opposite came, they weren't even happy with that. No one was pleased. Everyone was opposing And slandering both John for his extreme standards and unwillingness to partake in certain food and drink or his asceticism, his isolating his way. And they also slandered Jesus for his participation and willingness to eat and drink and called him an overeating drunk, the son of God. That's what they called Jesus, which was not true. Not at all. Of course not. Jesus did get drunk. He didn't sin in that way. But, but, But he came eating and drinking and being with sinners Not in excess and things, but in a godly, Christ-like way, because it was Jesus. But they still called him out. It wasn't good enough. No one was happy. The point here, of course, is that people had their preferences over biblical wisdom and biblical living, didn't they? Didn't they? John and Jesus were both living and doing the right things, even if in different ways as not all of God's people will be alike, and not every leader will be the same. But it didn't even matter here, right? Because the people were against them, both for opposite reasons, and no one could be pleased at all. Because the generation was an unsatisfied, childish generation looking for their own way, rejecting godly men for their own flippant and godless reasons. Their preferences and opinions and desires was for something other than godly biblical ministry that was in front of them. They were a foolish generation. They were indifferent, ignorant, fickle, never satisfied, always complaining, missing the point, the biblical point that is, denying God's messengers and message because it hurt their feelings or didn't align with their preferences or didn't fit their expectations, a bunch of high-maintenance, 
unbiblical people opposing both the godly John the Baptist and King Jesus himself for opposite reasons based on wicked, unbiblical opinions. Do we see that there in that parable? Does that describe our day and age? See, heads nodding. Does that describe you? Let's let's hope not. Because as we're going to see next week, Lord willing, we don't want to be a part of that crowd. For judgment is coming to that crowd. But more on that next week. But, But for today, in closing, what we've just seen here is that even the great John the Baptist had doubts. And Jesus met him in his doubts, had patience with him and grace for him, and used him greatly in spite of it. All because John the Baptist was a legitimate child of God, used by God even in his weaknesses. I was reminded this morning about the grace of God and patience of God for his children in an interchange with my son, Jeremiah, just this morning. I was reviewing this sermon, and right here, even at the end of my notes, and thinking through it, and he came in for a second. This was actually his second time coming into my room, and I let him know that I was working, kind of give me a second, buddy, and just give me a minute, but in less than a minute, (laughs) a few seconds later even, I hear him shouting from the living room, Dad! (laughs) Dad! And I'm just like, I didn't even get a minute. I got like... 15 seconds, maybe. He's shouting for me after I had given him direction. At first, I kind of got a little upset, like, get this done. Got to get to church. I got to get ready. I got to get Okay. But then I stopped what I was doing, stood up, went to the couch, turned on his show that he asked for. And you know what I said to him? I love you, buddy. You're my son. You can interrupt me. You can interrupt me. I don't like being interrupted, but you're my boy, and I want to help you out, even if it inconveniences me. What show do you want me to turn on for you? And then I turned it on. And just like that, a picture of a sinful, earthly father's love for his son who didn't listen and didn't get it right. We see in this a faint picture of our gracious God with us in the Christian life, don't we? who often don't listen. We often don't get it right, like John the Baptist. In his suffering season, we often get into seasons like that. But God looks at his children and loves us anyways and answers us and helps us and is patient with us. He's patient. He's patient with you. Bring your doubts and struggles and fears and imperfections and sin to him. If you're his child, he cares for you. He loves you. You're not a nuisance to him. He wants to help you when you're wrong and off and struggling. Just like he did with John. He'll do with you. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for what you've revealed in your word, and that we can see in your word glorious truths that apply to the people then, but then also apply directly to us as well and encourage us as believers in the Christian life. Would you give us a picture of you? Would you help us to see how 
glorious you are in everything you've done through your son, that you love us and that you're for us and that you want to help us and you want to correct us. Not because you're angry with us, but because you want what is good for us. You want to help us. You're our father. Help all of us to see that, be encouraged in that, and to come to you in hard times and in doubts, Lord. And would you meet us there? We say this in Christ's name.